Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen-backed Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by John Fazio, founder and CEO at Nerd Street Gamers. What's going on, John? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining me. So for those out there who are less familiar with you and your background, do you mind just walking us through the path you took to get to where you are today? Sure. You know, I, I've learned as an adult that I'm one of the lucky few that knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life when mm -hmm. I was nine years old. And that was probably a year after I touched a computer for the first time. You know, I grew up with the privilege of a father who, you know, empowered that hobby of being into computers. He brought me home at old computers from his work when he could. You know, he encouraged me to take them apart and encouraged me to put them back together. You know, by the time I was nine, I had written my first piece of code and watching the computer come alive with code that I had written at the time in a mashup of uh, assembler plugged into Visual Basic. You know, it was just like a life changer for me and mm -hmm. I knew in that moment not only that I wanted to you know be a technologist and that I wanted to you know spend the rest of my life on a computer but also that I wanted to run a company at that time in the 90s when you were into computers you had Bill Gates and Steve Jobs to look <laughs> up to and Michael Dell and Larry Ellison mm -hmm. and you know I grew up with them as my heroes as a kid and so I always knew what I wanted to do spent my entire childhood obsessed with computers teaching myself to code you know eventually building a business by the time I was 13 my father helped me print out trifold brochures that I took mm. to the rich neighborhoods with the big houses and mm. said, I'll help fix your computer or make you a website. And, you know, was making more than most of my teachers by the time I got to high school, wow. you know, running my own business. But the, the dichotomy for me uh, was that I was also an athlete and that was kind of mm -hmm. rare in that. I had a circle of friends who were computer nerds and I had a circle of friends who were athletes and they were not overlapping mm -hmm. and they were not friends. And I was, you know, kind of the only commonality there. And so you know, sports held a profound place in my life where, you know, computers were the world I could I could explore on my own terms. I could be who I wanted to be. You know, sports were my training in reality, you know, mm -hmm. how to how to deal with failure, how to lose, how to communicate with a team and work together and be a part of something bigger than yourselves. You know, the the fact that hard work and discipline produce outcomes. I learned all of that from sports and I cherish that. But what was always most profound to me, you know, in my life was the fact that sports was this great equalizer of opportunity, mm -hmm. you know, and so by the, by the time we got to high school, I'm looking at colleges and, you know, I'm middle-class kid, mm -hmm. two good parents going to a great school. I'm looking at, you know, the UCLA's, the Georgetown's, the Drexel's of the world. And my friend who had come over from Ghana and was living with his grandparents was looking at the same schools because mm -hmm. he was so good at soccer. And, mm -hmm. you know, that for me, is what I love the most about sports mm -hmm. is that it was this equalizer opportunity. So flash forward, you know, I'm basically choose to go to play soccer at Drexel University. Mm -hmm. And while I'm there, I, I build a business called Jarvis Innovations, which is you know, still one of the more influential software firms in Philadelphia. But when I was in my transition to college, I got to see for the first time in my life, a video game tournament inside mm -hmm. a mall in an internet cafe. And, you know, internet cafes were like magnet for me as a computer nerd. But mm -hmm. now seeing a competition was the ultimate merger of my two parts of my life, right? It mm -hmm. was like sports and computers together. And what was so exciting to me was this idea that, wow, well, all of the benefit 
that I got from sports, that great equalizer of opportunity, that pathway to opportunity that I got from sports, now suddenly that applies to video gamers and all of my PC friends and my gamer nerds that I had grown up with that were, you know, otherwise isolated from those opportunities from sports. And that was really exciting to me. But what was really tragic when I saw that tournament was they were all rich kids. Mm-hmm. You know, this three thousand dollar computer, a couple hundred hours a month in internet, a couple hundred hours per game, upgrading your hardware. There was not a single low income yeah. kid like my friend who was living with his grandparents playing soccer that didn't exist. And so that in that moment inspired me that, you know, this could be the biggest pipeline of opportunity in the world because, you know, this is 2006. Even back then there were more gamers than there were athletes. And mm-hmm. today that's even more true. Yeah. So this could potentially become a pipeline that rivals traditional sports, but it has to have the accessibility, the open entry way of, you know, connecting people to the equipment that you need to compete at scale otherwise it's just going to be you know for rich kids or mm-hmm. you know it's going to have the ice hockey effect where it's very limited in market size because of how expensive it is to compete and play and so i wanted to fix that i you know came up with a business plan called digital gaming arena we were going to build a network of you know facilities all across the country and use that to scale up and ultimately fell on my face failed to raise venture capital didn't have the mm-hmm. money to do it myself and you know just bootstrapped jarvis you know ourselves 10 years later jarvis was a flourishing engineer firm with its own venture arm that we were investing into, you know, startups. And I said, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to, you know, fund this myself. And so I went out and built my own venue to demonstrate what it could do, funded it entirely by myself and, you know, ultimately attracted venture capital and it's developed into what it is today, but that's, that's the path to get there. I think it's a really fascinating story. You know, I I always think those stories of folks who like, you can tell from literally the youngest age possible, they just are like intrinsically entrepreneurial. I always find those stories so fascinating. But, you know, as you mentioned several years back, like when you were coming up, you know, this whole nerdy tech interested world didn't really overlap much with like, you know, all the cool kids playing sports and all that stuff. At what point in your life did those two things actually start to overlap? You know, because today, obviously, like tech culture and even like gaming culture is so much more mainstream than it was before. So how did that sort of evolve throughout your life? Sure. And I'll comment on the first part you said about, you know, the me being intrinsically entrepreneurial, because I, I don't think I can take credit for that. And mm-hmm. I really, you know, as a, as a father now to two daughters, mm-hmm. I think a lot about nature versus nurture. And, and, you know, I don't know that I ever would have started my own company. I don't know that I ever would have taken that path had it not been for my dad mm-hmm. pushing and forcing me. And, you know, he saw the skill I had and he was a capitalist at heart and knew mm-hmm. how to push me into that space. And so I, I don't take too much credit for that. I really sure. you know, know I know my privilege there and I know mm-hmm. what I got from my my father and I and I'm incredibly grateful for it. So you know, I, I just wanted to comment on that. I'm not sure I can say it was something I was born with. It's yeah. you know, it's the parental factor for sure. To answer your question, yeah, it was. You know, I spent most of my life with two two friend groups that didn't talk to each other, and yeah. I, and I can't say that it really ever merged for me personally until Nerd Street, until mm-hmm. you know, I had built this company and I had been a part of the competition because. You know, my role at at the Internet Cafe in the early you know 2000s was as a network tech. I wasn't a competitive gamer. I wasn't mm-hmm. on the teams. I wasn't managing the teams. I was making sure the network stayed up during yeah. the tournament. And so I never got to really experience it until you know Nerd Street. But as you mentioned, society had changed, right? So Nerd yeah. Street starts in 2016. You know, I can talk more about the history there, but it, you know, officially as a venture back company in 2017. Mm-hmm. 
And at the time, you know, Ballers, the HBO series, had yeah. a, you know an esports scene. Esports mm -hmm. was in the movies for the first time. People were talking about it that hadn't existed before, and it really, you know, kind of merged the crowds. And that was the first time where I would go to our Counter Strike tournaments and see, you know, teams that are, you know, major portions of our participants were D two, D three athletes, football mm -hmm. players, hockey players that you know were now playing Counter Strike full time. Starcraft athletes who you know had had been cross country runners and tennis mm -hmm. players in, in high school, and I didn't really get that world until you know nerd street for me the moment that the world's like the, the gap really dissipated mm -hmm. was 20 2018 right after my father passed away i was in california i was at blizzcon mm -hmm. and i was surfing in between sessions and mm -hmm. i was in this town called encinitas where i stay one of the only real true surf towns left in California, in my mm -hmm. opinion. <laughs> and I get out of the water and there's these two little, we call them Groms, little, little kids who are, you know, new surf, like a newbie mm -hmm. for video gamers. You know, <laughs> Grom uh, is a young surfer and they were surfing circles around me out there. You know, I, I started late in life, mm -hmm. so I'm not, not the greatest. And I get out and I, I walk up to these kids and I'm walking by them to my car and the one, and you know, they were clearly fit, popular, you know, yeah. the whole works. Mm -hmm. And probably 16, 15 years old, and they were putting on Overwatch hats. And mm -hmm. this was when Overwatch had just taken off. And I and I walked up to the kid and I was like, yo, man, you play Overwatch? And this kid looks at me, I'm probably 27 at the time, mm -hmm. like I'm some old guy. And he's <laughs> like, of course we play Overwatch. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, like the popular kid, like in my, yeah. you know, if I had said that to my star for a football player in high school, I might've got, you know, dunked on it. <laughs> Watching that experience for me was like, wow, it's mainstream. It's here. And so, you know, again, it wasn't really until Nerd Street that I felt that. So it's been a more recent phenomenon that now, you know, one of our investors is Kevin Durant, you know, mm -hmm. Emmanuel Sanders, Juju mm -hmm. Smith-Schuster. They're all on our cap table, <laughs> you know. Uh, so the idea that pro athletes would have a level of reverence and respect for esports athletes yeah. and gamers was not a thing 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, it is now. And I'm really excited about that. I think that's such a great story. Uh, Overwatch is like one of my all-time favorite games, but it's also like very nerdy. So like the fact that like, you know, one of the cool kids was playing that game, that's definitely a great story. You know, yeah. growing up, I also played soccer, not to the level of you. I was like a average to below average high school player. <laughs> you know, I know you played a little bit more, but you know, being a gamer and a soccer player, I also saw that dichotomy for sure. Like there were people that I would talk to, you know, in the cafeteria about gaming and then like, you know, the quote unquote cool kids or whatever you know we would just like never really talk about that stuff so yeah. it's great to see how that has changed at what point did you decide that like rather than going the soccer route you know obviously like the I think the financial outcomes are quite a bit different like in the tech world versus like the semi-pro soccer route and you know the passion for the game carries a lot of people so at what point did you decide to sort of like hang up your boots and decide that you're going all in on on the tech side so I never really considered a pro, like there was moments of dreams, you know, and I, you know, the first time I made a ODP, which is an Olympic development program, the mm -hmm. first time I made that team, it was like, wow, maybe, maybe this is something I can do. Mm -hmm. I had friends on my teams who got recruited to go play in, in teams over in Europe. I got to train at uh, Aarhus AGF in Denmark, you know, um, and, and got a lot of like tastes of those experiences, but I never really considered it as a path just because of the economics, you know, like I knew coming out of college and again, you 
you got to remember I, I had started a company in high school, so I was generating mm-hmm. revenue for myself. Yeah. And yeah, I remember graduating and I think I was probably making 30, 40 grand a year, which mm-hmm. to high school kids, a ton of money. And then I would, you know, look at the soccer offers, you know, to skip college and go play D2 in Poland or D2 <laughs> in Germany or a D3 team in the Netherlands. Yeah. And it was like 20 grand, yeah. <laughs> 15 grand a year, you know, and so even at that point, I was like, the economics don't work here. And I, you know, especially in soccer, it's a little less true now, yeah. but it was very true back then. Mm-hmm. You had to be top 10 in the country yeah. to even consider breaking six figures, <laughs> you know, and that wasn't even that. And like the best player in the United States probably wasn't even getting paid what MLB athletes yeah. were getting paid. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it wasn't there um, economically. So to me, it was always about get this to get you into college. Mm-hmm. And then the irony was by the time I got to college, I had no desire for college. I just wanted to start a business, but I had spent my whole life training to be a D1 athlete. I'd given up my weekends. I'd given mm-hmm. up relationships. I, you know, wasn't the kid who went out and drank on the weekend. I trained on Saturday mornings and, mm-hmm. you know, I had to play D1. And so yeah. I went to Drexel for a year and I dropped out to run my company full time. To Drexel's credit, they have an incredible entrepreneurship program. So I actually got to stay there a year longer in my sophomore year, just running my company out of their entrepreneurship center. So, you know, they were great about that transition and I couldn't have asked for a better experience, uh, you know, in college, but I kind of always knew it wasn't for me. There was a time period where my dad said, you're going to waste money because I was not getting a full scholarship. And so I still had to pay. And, you know, my father was saying, you're going to waste your money because you're going to drop out. (laughs) And he at one point had offered me like $15,000 to start a business in California Mm -hmm. because he knew I loved being over there. And I said, I have to play D1. Like I cannot (laughs) not make it. I had to do it. And he he turned out to be right, but (laughs) I had to take my path. Do you still play at all? I still play pickup like at least once a week. I was playing actively multiple mm-hmm. times a week until I had my daughter, okay. who's now almost four years old. So it's been four years since I've played competitively. I have not played in a league in four years, and I'm craving it. And yeah. they're just now I have two daughters. The other is 15 months, and you know I'm just getting to a point where they're old enough that I could probably get back into, mm-hmm. you know, something. Uh, running a company and running kids, uh, you know, it yeah, takes up most of your time. But mm-hmm. I am craving it. I would love to get back out on the field. Awesome. All right, so let's talk about Nerd Street. For those who aren't familiar with Nerd Street, you know, do you, do you mind just walking through like what does Nerd Street do? You know, just higher level, what's the the business model? And you know, I I know you mentioned like how access is important to you. So, you know, maybe if you want to just touch on the mission of Nerd Street as well. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Nerd Nerd Street set out with a very simple mission, which was to make esports is biggest sports and to do that there's going to be a bunch of needs and problems we have to solve the biggest one was building gaming venues Mm -hmm. and when you think of gaming most people think of playing from home Mm -hmm. you play on your own internet connection you play in your bedroom you join up with friends the problem with competition if we want to you know liken it to what the ncaa looks like is when i walk out on the soccer field if i paid 400 dollars for my cleats and you paid 20 dollars I don't have an advantage over you, maybe a comfort, maybe, but like, I don't have an advantage over you, but having a $5,000 computer versus a $500 computer, I have an advantage. I'm going to see more than you. I'm going to be on a 144 Hertz monitor while you're on a 30 Hertz monitor and I can see faster. I can see more. I can react quicker. And don't get me wrong. There's always exceptions to that. You always find the one kid on the terrible internet who's better than everybody, Mm -hmm. but that's an exception. That's an outlier. And, you know, there's a competitive integrity issue with the, the equipment and the the deviation in in the capabilities of that equipment. Mm -hmm. And then also the internet speeds, right? So, you know, you have better internet, you have a better ping, you can do better than I can do. And so that, 
means that you can't scale to the level of the NCAA like sports without having an even playing field. It's essential that you have to have an even playing field. And so, you know, our venues mean that you, when you compete inside of it, just like being on the soccer field where you have the same goals, same field, you know, we're all running together. You're all on the same equipment. You're on the same internet. And, you know, sometimes the counter opposition to that is, you know, Hey, what happens? You know, computers are obviously get cheaper. Access gets cheaper. What happens when every single cell phone can play every single game and cloud gaming is the thing. Fine. Let's say that's theoretically possible, which we haven't seen. Obviously the hardware increases with the desire for more capability. And that's always been the market, but let's say that were the case. And for a dollar, you could play any game you wanted on any hardware. You cannot change the speed of light. Mm -hmm. And as long as the speed of light exists and we are governed by the speed of light and our optic network connections, you are never going to be able to have competitive integrity without being on the same network because I can simply pay for better internet, better access. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe me, look at the multi-billion dollar, hundred billion dollar high speed, high frequency yeah. trading industry that pays to get closer and closer to the mm -hmm. data center so they can get ahead of you in the stock market, right? And that exists for gaming too, you know, and to this day, we have pro gaming teams who have their own beautiful multi-million dollar facilities mm -hmm. that fly out to our venues to play in our venue because we're closer to the server that they're playing on mm -hmm. and they want a better ping to train for some tournament. So that speed of light will never go away. And for that reason, if we want to have a college system, if we want to mm -hmm. have a pro system that looks like the NCAA, that looks like the NFL, the NBA, you're going to need a national network of venues, just like we have a national network of soccer fields, basketball courts, et cetera. And you're going to have to play in person. Schools can't just play on their own network and play California to New York. Mm -hmm. That'll never, that will never work as long as we don't change the speed of light and you're going to need to have schools flying to each other competing face to face just like you would in sports and then the last piece of that is behavior you know one of gaming's biggest problems is behavior it's you know the anonymous culture and what that inspires from racism to you know misogyny and you name it all the worst of human behavior comes out when people are anonymous sitting behind a screen we know that well when you play in our venue you're face to face looking each other in the eye shaking hands and so again when you think through like the level of the ncaa you need that. You need to be face-to-face. -face. We need that type of infrastructure. And so I went off on a little bit of a tangent <laughs> there to explain why we started this. But, you know, what Nerd Street is, is a collection of gaming venues uh, all across the country that are connected. And we inspire national-level programming. And our goal is to, you know, effectively be the live nation of, of gaming that uh, effectively catalyzes the esports industry to somewhere that's sustainable. One point that you brought up that I thought was pretty interesting is something I've discussed in the past with some other guests, right? It's on the gaming culture and how it can sometimes be somewhat toxic, you know, and how the anonymity of the internet can sometimes encourage that. You know, there have been some studies that have shown, you know, like 80 or 90% or whatever really high number of people has claimed that they've faced some sort of harassment or abuse online gaming. I honestly would guess, you know, having been an online gamer forever, I would guess it's literally close to 100%. At the same time, there are some people who say that that sort of toxicity is inherent to gaming culture, right? If you look at like the earliest esports events, the ones that were in person, you know, part of the, you know, allure, if you want to call it that, to some of the gamers literally was like, you know, you talk all this trash online. Now we're here. And like, every time I outplay you, I'm going to like scream, you know, horrendous things in your face, whatever. What do you think the future of like the toxicity in 
in gaming culture looks like, right? Because it seems like most people don't want that to be a thing. But at the same time, some people are like, oh, this is like, you know, how, how we came up and this is how it's always been. Yeah, the, there's really two big elements to why that exists. Number one is counterculture. You know, mm -hmm. there was a time where gaming, and it's there, but it's mostly faded, you know, was mm -hmm. counterculture. And all counterculture movements face this same type of thing, because when you're counterculture, you're attracting the outliers. Mm -hmm. You're attracting the people who are going to say the things that normal average won't say yeah. and i used to love the analogy to hip-hop you know because mm -hmm. if you look at hip-hop in the 70s and 80s and 90s like that was built by a cohort of people who you know overlapped with criminality in mm -hmm. a major way you know you the things you heard <laughs> you didn't hear like let's talk about nwa and the issues they had with the fbi mm -hmm. and the police that was a counterculture movement yeah. and now hip-hop is the center of our culture you mm -hmm. have 80 year old white guys that wear their suits the way they wear them because of hip hop. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's influenced everything, not just fashion and culture, mm -hmm. but our business structures and, you know, how we think about intellectual property and how individuals can own their own content. And mm -hmm. all of this, you know, was affected by hip hop, which was once a counterculture. I think esports will look and have a similar evolution. And I say esports, but I really mean gaming in general. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we're already seeing it. I already think that gaming culture is improving. You know, now you play League of Legends, you play, you know, any of the Riot games, you play, you know, a lot of the Ubisoft games and you act that way, you're going to get banned, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Nobody got banned 10 years ago. Yeah. Now you get banned. You can't mm -hmm. play anymore. Play Overwatch and say something racist and watch how quick you get yeah. banned, right? So we are getting better. We're improving it. We're coming out of the counterculture. But the second issue is anonymity. Mm -hmm. is that you know hip-hop you didn't get to be anonymous you still had to stand there with your face right yeah. and so in gaming for the first time of a counterculture you know think about punk you know think about all the other movements mm -hmm. we've had of counterculture you know all the way back to the you know the hippies there was never anonymity yeah. and now all of a sudden gaming's counterculture with anonymity mm -hmm. and it was just the perfect storm of chaos so i think that it is an unfortunate part of our history that mm -hmm. needs to evolve. We need to evolve past it. The embracing of it, the people who say that's OG, mm -hmm. you know, that's, yeah. that's wrong. I, mm -hmm. I do not agree with it. I think that those people will be pushed out no matter how loyal they are, no matter what their history is. It's the behavior doesn't scale. And, you know, sports had a similar issue you know it, we, we don't think about the nfl like you look at how polished it is and they still have their own issues today yeah. right mm -hmm. but you know a hundred years ago those were dudes smoking cigarettes and going to the strip club after the game that mm -hmm. that was a culture that doesn't exist now in the same way mm -hmm. and they grew out of it and capitalism helps with that and i think that's what will happen here too i think that playing in person for the competitive side is what's going to really eliminate this because you know if you if you were to ask a thousand gamers you know a thousand gamers who have played on LAN, you know land meaning local area network mm -hmm. meaning playing in person mm -hmm. if you were to ask a thousand gamers who've played on LAN, have you faced toxicity online? All 100% are going to say mm -hmm. yes, like you said. If you ask them if they face toxicity in person, I bet you it's less than 5%, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a lot. Um, and, and that's obviously anecdotal, but you know, you don't see that when you're face-to-face. -face. Right. So I think having face-to-face -face competition, whether in our venues or whether you know in your school's venue or whatever, uh, is going to be a major piece of fixing that as well. I think another interesting point that you brought up that uh, I think a lot of people don't really think about as much or talk about as much, right? But it's literally just like the the physics problem that you brought up. 
no matter what, no matter how good internet gets, maybe I shouldn't say no matter, right? Because sometimes technology does magic. But as far as we understand physics, like literally there always will be things like latency when you're online. Yeah, you know, I'm not a physicist, so I won't get too, too much into that. But at the same time, you know, during the pandemic, obviously the whole world changed. You couldn't do in-person tournaments. And then as a result, a lot of esports tournaments, you know, had to move online based on necessity. Obviously, you lost a little bit when it came to competitive integrity. You know, there was more latency, et cetera. It matters more for certain types of games than others. But since the pandemic, certain games have still been doing some, you know, even if they're not the largest, most important tournaments for their games online. Do you think that we have seen a permanent sea change in that there will just be more acceptance in these online tournaments at the highest level of competition? Or do you think this is more temporary and will will end up going back to the way things were before? Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the question in the context of the gaming, but I think you're kind of touching on a sociopolitical issue that's really more than just gaming. It's, you know, and and, and we saw it across the country with live in-person congregation of crowds, etc., and what we saw in our country was that we don't all agree, mm-hmm. right? Like, so if you were in Texas, your experience was very different yeah. than if you were in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And so the pandemic had a very different impact on New York social gatherings and mm-hmm. Texas's social gatherings. And to some extent, I think that's healthy. Uh, that's what I love about our country is we've got, you know, a, a bunch of different states experimenting and we are the great experiment of, you yeah. know, democracy here. And I appreciate the Delta, even when I don't agree with the mm-hmm. other side. And, you know, I think that's healthy. When it comes to gaming, specifically i i think it was similar in that you know if we talked in you know to live event producers in texas versus new york it was a very different time in the conversation in 2020 and 21 so it wasn't ubiquitous and then on the flip side there was a major validation of what i've been saying about the integrity because mm-hmm. you had you know major you know call of duty league you know multi-million dollar prize pots where kids got disconnected yeah. and like you just spent four hours and you're in the you know, the pinnacle of your career mm-hmm. and the internet cut out or, you know, we had cheaters. We had kids yeah, that yeah. got caught mm-hmm. cheating. And sometimes the cheats were literal cheating in, you know, in the game. And sometimes they were more indirect in that I was, you know, listening in on something or watching somebody stream while they were playing and mm-hmm. stealing information. And so, you know, the, the, the competitive integrity piece was made clear. And I think post-pandemic, the validation was complete when every single major publisher was like, let's get you all in person as fast yeah. as possible. Mm-hmm. And even before they got the crowds, they had the teams on the same computers, the same networks. Mm-hmm. Even before they were doing major, you know, arenas, they were doing studios with the teams in person. And that was cemented, I think, in COVID was that this, we can do it. You know, we're the only, that was what was great. We, you know, the NBA had to build a bubble and spend probably hundreds of millions, if not billions doing it when we all were just like, cool, we'll turn on our computers and play from home. Mm -hmm. We were able to do it, but it doesn't scale to the level of, you know, competition that it, it it could it doesn't become as big as it can without it and it comes with all of these issues so i, I think the pandemic was the greatest proof point mm-hmm. you know for, for our entire purpose in existing which is that gaming needs to be in person face to face if we want it to be as big as sports talking a bit more about competitive integrity but maybe from from a different angle right and it's it ties into like cybersecurity, right? But like, no matter how good your security gets, you know, the hackers always get better, right? And similarly in games, no matter how good your competitive integrity approach gets, 
you know, the cheaters just get better, right? I think there have been definitely a lot fewer cases of people cheating in in-person tournaments, but it still does happen, yep. you know, very rarely, right? So just curious, how do you guys approach competitive integrity for events that you guys are, are hosting? And how sure. do you think about, you know, just staying ahead of this sort of endless cat and mouse problem? Yeah, and, and you know, it's the same in sports. To, you know, you got steroid testing in every sport. You got the NFL. Every time somebody has a big game, you got drug tests the next yeah. morning, right? Mm-hmm. And people cheat and they get mm-hmm. caught. And, you know, our icons like Lance Armstrong cheat, right? Yeah. So like we've seen this in sports and I think it's no different. Mm-hmm. When it comes to us, you know, like sports, you have like tiers, right? Mm-hmm. So at the UFC, you're getting tested all the time. They're showing up with random drug tests. Well, if I'm fighting at my local MMA gym, I am not getting tested, yeah. right? But they may be checking to make sure my hands and my wraps don't have razors in them. Easy, right? And so it's that level. So in our you know, facilities, you have an observer mm-hmm. in the game with you. You have admins walking behind you, quite literally, looking over your shoulder, seeing the computer, seeing your mice, your keyboards. And that'll stop most yeah. of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and it's a lot easier to catch a cheater that way. But if you're at the pro level, your mice and keyboard get locked up mm-hmm. in a box the night before so that nobody can change them. And they are like taking them apart and looking at them to make mm-hmm. sure that they're all you know okay and that you don't have software built into your keyboard or into your mm-hmm. mouse and the overwatch league had these like big musicians bot whatever the band boxes those big boxes you roll around on the stage mm-hmm. full of the, the players keyboards and mice under lock and key just to maintain the integrity of the mm-hmm. equipment so you know they're gonna be those kinds of levels but i will say that you know we run online tournaments too one of the things that we like to do is run online tournaments that give the opportunity to pay for your travel so mm-hmm. you might play in an online tournament to win in to an in-person tournament and come out to one of our venues and play you know so having you know being somebody who runs online tournaments and offline tournaments it is a lot easier yeah. to regulate when i st- when i'm standing over your shoulder mm-hmm. it's a lot harder when we're watching a stream and going that looks funny can we ask him for his logs can we ask you know that person to watch their live stream while they're playing it's tough i think that's probably the right approach right for the like you know, sort of less consequential tournaments, you know, maybe it can make sense to have those ones online and, you know, maybe just accept a little bit that, you know, you can't have 100% integrity or as much as you would like to uh, in person. And then for the more consequential ones, you know, you have to have them in person. Right. Just wanted to shift gears and talk about schools for a minute, right? So as we were discussing earlier, you know, the gaming landscape has just changed a ton. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, you see in, in surveys, you know, when you ask young kids today, a lot of them, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, a lot of the things that you hear are like either, you know, YouTube streamer or like Twitch streamer or like professional gamer. Right. And, you know, I think part of this is just culture changing. And I think part of this is also just the fact that there actually are a lot more opportunities today than there were previously, you know, including some school based or university based teams or leagues. So obviously that's a big change that we've seen, but today, you know, frankly, even the most formal, you know, well-funded school-based teams or leagues, you know, are nothing like, you know, the NCAAs of the world or traditional uh, college sports leagues. So what do you think this landscape looks like going forward? And what do you think still needs to be done to give, you know, this, this avenue of sort of like college gaming to the pros to lend it more legitimacy. Yeah. So I have a few comments on that one. I'll go in reverse there. You know, I I do think that there are some gaming programs that rival traditional sports. Mm -hmm. So like I've been in some D2 and D3 gyms that are questionable (laughs) and I've been in some, you know, gaming facilities at colleges that are 
you i mean mm-hmm. like i'll give a huge shout out to full sail you mm-hmm. know their arena is beautiful i mean we have a, an arena with rowan university and we're building another one with albright and they're mm-hmm. beautiful but full sail did a really incredible job and i'd say that that's a lot nicer than a lot of d2 schools gyms d3 school gyms so <laughs> there is some examples of of success there but i i, I do think that we're in a mad rush for schools right now. The professional industry, I think, got built backwards. You know, we built a pro league before we had summer camps and youth leagues. That's not true for other sports. Like the the NFL was built out of the Ivy League and playing Mm -hmm. in college and it grew and took hundreds of years to develop. And with esports, we came in backwards. And then we were surprised when there wasn't an underlying market scale to hold sustainable profits. And suddenly the market wasn't big enough. And I don't think that'll always be the case, but I think it was because it was done backwards. And so the more that the schools develop, the more that the schools build these facilities and start to rival traditional sports, that's where the underlying market size is going to come from that will make pro sports sustainable. So when I say nerd Street's purpose is, you know, to be the live nation of gaming and to catalyze the esports industry's profitability. What I mean is that more venues we build makes more customers. And just like I'm a diehard fan of the Eagles and the NFL, mm-hmm. but I never played football. That what that happens in gaming too. If game mm-hmm. if there's a gaming team at your school, you might not have to play League of Legends, but if on Friday night that's where everybody is watching the League of Legends match and it's awesome, now you're a fan and you're going to buy stuff, you're going to consume their media, and that develops a market when you think about it over generations of high schools and colleges pumping out you know fans Mm -hmm. that's where sustainability comes for from the pro leagues and i think it's going to need to be colleges that lead the charge right now people talk about this esports winter because so many of the professional organizations you know have struggled while in college it's exploding you know it's absolutely you talk to a college administrator about esports they're not going to talk to you about an esports winner they're going to say this is what we have to do and our donors want to give us money for this and the students want to come here and you know when we did our ribbon cutting at rowan's venue that we opened the you know president of the school said he had already you know seen that students had chosen this school over other (laughs) schools because they had a gaming venue and a gaming team and so i think that's going to expand. I think that the next five years, we're going to see more growth in collegiate than we've in collegiate gaming than we've seen in 20 years. And I think that will ultimately facilitate the the larger, you know, kind of pro industry. One of the other things you touched on, you know, I said I would do this in reverse. And the first thing you talked about was the desire of kids to be streamers and gamers. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made a face at that because it makes me a little bit sad. <laughs> you know, Palmer Lucky of Anduril had his famous speech, I don't know, probably only a month or two ago. And I'm paraphrasing. So, you know, if I get the quote wrong, I'm sorry, but he said something like, we shouldn't be telling our kids to chase their dreams if their dreams suck. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think that was one of the most profound things I've heard in years. And I think he has a strong point there. And what's happening is that we're confusing passion and hobby and ambition, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we think that, you know, because you should, because we say, you know, do what you love to be happy. We think that we should only do the recreational part of what we love. I don't get that, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, you know, what what I think should be happening is that, you know, the passion from video games and the connection to technology should be driving you to be a technologist mm-hmm. because every gamer is a technologist. And we need to reframe the positioning of like, I want to be an influencer. Well, guess what? Being an influencer means that you're creating content, you're a technologist, you're using all sorts of content creation tools and technological tools and compute. So, so why not 
desire to be the best possible technologist as opposed to just a YouTube streamer, right? And so I, I think that there's like a reframing that needs mm -hmm. to happen. And I don't think anything can do it as well as gaming, you know, and, and, and if you look at every Fortune 500 tech CEO from Palmer Lucky to Elon Musk to mm -hmm. Bill Gates, they all have an origin story in gaming. Mm -hmm. They all said, you know, gaming got me attracted. Me too. Like, that's what brought me into computers. Like, you know, uh, there, there's a game that brought you to a computer and you said, well, what's this? How's this work? And then boom, you're you're coding and, you know, you've developed this skill set. Um, and I, that's not a coincidence, right? I think the inherent nature of technology and the connection of pulling us all together, you know, can build technologists. And so our venues when you come in you know we're putting you on a computer if you're nine years old and you want to play minecraft or Fortnite, we're putting you on a computer and you're learning how to use a keyboard you're mm -hmm. learning how to use a mouse you're learning how to navigate an operating system you're learning how to build your own you know uh, system sets and things that you like on how you use the computer those are all things that translate to a career the kid who's sitting down in his basement playing Fortnite, talking to three thousand people every week that's a skill set that yeah. in the workplace you're going to need. The kid who's listening to people scream and yell at them and listening to awful, you know, I, I don't think it should be there, but mm -hmm. the, the, the awful behavior and the awful communication is teaching them how to survive that in the mm -hmm. real world. Go sit on the you know, New York City subway or a Philadelphia public mm -hmm. bus. You're going to hear the same mm -hmm. stuff, you know, and except it's in person. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that these skill sets get kind of like misjudged. And if we reframe how we look at the skills you're developing when you're using gaming, you know, there are honorable dreams to be had, to be chased here. And I think we're just looking for too easy a summary there when, when we really need to, you know, look at the more involved way to use this technology to benefit your life. So I hope that esports and gaming and the connection to technology can ultimately be a catalyst in, you know, making more innovators and making more technologists that will help society progress and get better as opposed to you know what it could be and what palmer lucky feared is that it is a distraction for consumerism i have a lot of follow-ups there i want to come back to the esports winner but i i want to follow up on some of the the points that you brought up so you know first of all i think one of the big points that you made and i've talked to other guests about this you know, when a lot of these really sort of competitive gamers were coming up, like everyone wanted to be the best, you know, and people thought like those were going to be the people that were like, you know, the biggest on, you know, Twitch or whatever other streaming platform. And today it's really like the, you know, you know, frankly, like the good looking people who are like good in front of a camera. Right. And so it very much did morph from like, you know, I want to be the best competitor to you know, I'm like this generation's sort of e-celebrity. So I just think that's like really, and it's interesting how like a lot of the younger kids say, you know, like that's their goal, right? Like I wasn't never a pro gamer, but I was a pretty competitive Halo player. So I've played with a lot of pros and I always wanted to be the best, period. Now the kids want to like be the most famous, have the most views and and, and all that stuff. So I just thought that was a really interesting point that, that you brought up. See, I don't think it's unique to gaming. I think we're also seeing it with sports. I think that's more mm -hmm. about streaming culture. You know, so I like agree. now now that we're seeing the NIL deals that get done and we're seeing, you know, high school athletes get social followings that are huge. Um, I think it's more about our culture of social media and content creation than it is specific to gaming because mm -hmm. you're seeing NFL prospects decide to go into entertainment instead yeah. because that's where they're going to make more money and do less damage to their body so it's not unique to gaming i think that's more of a cultural transition that we're in and i don't you know i don't think gaming is one you know has one one effect or the other there
I agree with that completely. Another point that I wanted to bring up that I, I think was another great point you made was as the viewing these people as what they were, as in they were gamers, but also technologists, right? So if you look at a lot of like the top streamers, you know, like XQC, for example, you know, he's like the end boss of Twitch right now. He started out like as a competitive Overwatch player and he was on this platform extremely early you know so like from that standpoint he was just like an early adopter to an emerging tech platform and he happened to be good at it you know i don't think he was chasing like how can i be the most famous you know 10 years from now you know he's like this is something that i'm really passionate about this is really cool technology let me figure out and let me see how i can i, I can be the best at it so i think that's a really good point right like a lot of the people who become the biggest on these platforms it was because they were early adopters of a technology and they were figuring out that technology as it grew and proliferated yeah and there's all sorts of examples that span the spectrum there because mm -hmm. like on one hand you'll have a uh... You know, I mean, look at Lyric. Like, Lyric got huge without ever showing his face, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just by playing and being funny and cool mm -hmm. and, you know, had really little competitive desires. And then on the flip side, you had somebody like Shroud, who was just pure skill. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. like, everybody just became hooked. It was like Lionel Messi. It was yeah. like, mm -hmm. this isn't a pretty thing. This isn't a pretty person to watch. But, my gosh, what they're doing with the ball is beautiful. Yeah. And that's what, like, Shroud clicking on heads are like, I, I can't even <laughs> comprehend this skill set. Um, and, and you know, I, I think that dichotomy um, again, exists in sports. And mm -hmm. I love the Cristiano Ronaldo versus Messi, both yeah. incredibly talented, but one clearly more focused on the aesthetic mm -hmm. and one clearly more focused on just pure skill. Yeah. And so you see that in streaming too, pretty significantly. And I think that's, that's healthy. And, you know, I'm glad that those opportunities exist for the people who, you know, can't necessarily be the, the best competitor, but mm -hmm. have a great personality. And, you know, I'm glad those opportunities are there. There are a lot of opportunities that gaming can provide. Mm -hmm not just on the content side, you know, this is what we work with at our venue, whether it's right. learning the the back end, the technology mm -hmm. behind it, the broadcast and all of that. But, you know, those opportunities and the spectrum, I think is really special about gaming. So, you know, you mentioned that you were a gamer growing up. What are some of the games that you played growing up? Are you still a gamer today? What's sort of your, your gamer origin story? First game I ever played was NHL 93 with my dad. I think it was a Sega. Like, I could be wrong. I was really young, but I think it was a Sega Genesis. And I loved it. And that was like, you know, it really got hooked. My dad was really into uh, sports sim games as a mm -hmm. kid. So that, that pulled me in. And then Doom on the PC. Doom led to Quake. Quake led to Unreal Tournament. You know, I know a lot of people were either or, but I was like all in on Unreal Tournament for a long time. And then StarCraft. And I've been playing StarCraft for more than 20 years now. Yeah. It's It was the game that I got, you know, most hooked on. And, and that was the first time I was actually competitive. You know, mm -hmm. Unreal Tournament, I was just for fun. StarCraft was like... I want to have the best record, you know, back then on Battle.net, you wanted to see how high you could get your wins. You know, I, I really fell in love with gaming through StarCraft in a major way. Today, with kids, it's tough because I, I can only play the games that I can get in 30 minutes and stop because my, you know, and it might even happen while we're on this interview. Somebody's going to burst <laughs> through the door and interrupt me. So, like, I've had a lot of trouble playing Counter-Strike where you need an hour of match. I've had a lot of trouble playing, you know, tournaments and things like that, where five years ago I was, you know, playing PUBG tournaments daily and i mm -hmm. loved it and, and so you know i probably game one tenth the amount of time mm -hmm. with kids that i did pre-kids if not even less and so i enjoy some of the more recreational stuff so i play rust but on a pve server where mm -hmm. there's you know it's very laid back and i get to just 
basically be adult Minecraft building mm -hmm. nice houses and stuff. And I, I like that I can log in, check my base and play a little. I, I play all the shooters when I can. You know, if Call of Duty update drops, I'm going to log in. I'm going to, you know, play PUBG when the update hits, mm -hmm. things like that. My friends are all into the finals right now. So I've been playing a little bit of the finals. I try to keep my, you know, keep a taste to the game so I know what's, mm -hmm. what's good. But yeah, I went from playing four hours a day to 20 minutes a day. So mm -hmm. it's a very different. Yeah, I want to play the finals. I haven't played it yet. I have a couple of friends who have said good things, but I wanted to talk about your fundraising. So, you know, you, to date, you guys have raised about $40 million. You know, you have a very impressive list of investors, some of whom you've named already. You know, Founders Fund is another big one I, I don't think you've named yet. So, you know, obviously very impressive fundraising track record. You know, esports from an investing standpoint, you know, was very, very hot a few years ago. Today... It's a little bit less hot, right? You know, we've seen some large esports or adjacent companies that have raised a lot of funding, you know, have less than favorable outcomes. And I think as a result, a lot of investors have sort of cooled down as far as their interest in investing in the space. So a couple of questions. One, what was your fundraising journey like, or what has it been like to date? Two, why do you think investors are wrong and why is investing in esports still attractive today? So if if you you know were to go back and look at my interviews from 2018 or 2019, I think you'll hear me saying a lot of this and I'm not trying to toot my own horn too much, but to me this has mm -hmm. always been the obvious case that we were building this industry backwards. I myself was an angel investor, I still am and I still deploy capital and I would have investors talk to me about investing in a pro team and a pro mm -hmm. league. And I just did, you know, VCs, you want to 10 to 100 times outcome, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't see any of that. I didn't see any sustainability. I didn't see any market size. And so I was very adamant that there was missing underlying infrastructure. And I would rather write a check to a company investing in a youth league, a youth summer camp, mm -hmm. you know, a recreational league, you know, something that connects more kids, gaming venues, you know, the, the ancillary support services of the gaming infrastructure than teams and, and leagues and, and content stuff because the market's not there. And so, yeah, that collapsed on a lot of people's faces in a way that seemed sort of obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, most pro sports teams took a hundred years to get to their current mm -hmm. valuation and they still lose money, right? Mm -hmm. Most of them still lose money and their private equity deals that get two to three times outcomes, not hundred times yeah. outcomes. And so trying to pretend like esports was going to suddenly break that paradigm and be more lucrative than the Yankees and the Cowboys. <laughs> and no, that made no sense to me. It made sense when those teams invested. You know, I, I understood when the teams got behind it as a way to, you know, hedge audience deviation mm -hmm. and, and as a way to capture a younger audience. That made sense. You know, we ran Fortnite tournaments with the Sixers and the Flyers here in Philadelphia mm -hmm. that brought a whole new generation of people to those sports that mm -hmm. came for a Fortnite tournament but went, wow, hockey's pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so I, I'm all for that type mm -hmm. of integration, but the VC play made no sense to me yeah. at all. And so, you know, how has it been for me? <laughs> This is, you know, I'll, I'll give you the true story. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of people get on these podcasts and want to sugarcoat it all yeah. and talk from the present and pretend like it was all easy and, you know, whatever. But the fact that we raised $40 million to me was actually a failure. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, I don't see that as a success. I would mm -hmm. be happy had I raised less money. There's been a couple of, you know, false starts and mm -hmm. partnerships we aligned ourselves with that didn't work out. You know, one of the biggest issues we faced ultimately was that we had partnered, you know, with corporate VCs mm -hmm. and my background selling to corporations made it very easy for mm -hmm. me to tap my network there. And, you know, Comcast invested, put us directly on the balance sheet. Five mm -hmm. Below invested, put us directly on the balance sheet. Corsair invested, put us directly on the balance sheet. For Corsair, you know, a group that's in the industry and, you know, it makes all the sense in the world mm -hmm. and perfect partner. You know, for Comcast, you know, who has been a, as good a partner as you could ask for, they're a big company. We get lost mm -hmm. in in the sea and we're not, you know, going to be a priority when mm -hmm. we're this kind of small cap balance sheet item. And what we did was with some of those corporate partnerships, specifically with our Five Below partnership, you know, the idea was we can build thousands of venues together mm -hmm. and it'll be cheap. It'll be affordable because you already have the venues. We're going to plop these in and we'll be able to scale really fast. We raised all the capital because we had to pay to build these venues. So mm -hmm. our CapEx costs were extraordinary. Yeah. You know, 40 million, probably 30 of that, if not more, went into CapEx <laughs> building these venues. And so we we built, you know, nine or 10 venues with Five Below. And the person who invested and did our deal ultimately left the company, went to another mm -hmm. company. They shifted strategies. You know, they've been as good a partner as they possibly could be, but, you know, they're a discount retailer. They're not focused on gaming. And they ultimately shut the partnership down. And we had to close all these venues that we'd spent millions yeah. and millions of dollars building. And all that CapEx was wasted. And so that was brutal. It was depressing. It was hard. Hard. I had to, you know, lay people off. It was mm -hmm. like sleepless nights, gray beard, you name mm -hmm. it. It was the worst time period of my life going through that. Um, but you know, we we found a way to survive in focusing on universities. And so, you know, what we found were that these universities are scrambling to build venues and get mm -hmm. them up in their, you know, campuses to support their gaming teams and doing it yourself costs millions of dollars. Well, hey, we've got the supply chains, we've got the expertise, we've got the experience, we can roll out, you know, venues at colleges for a fraction of the mm -hmm. cost and the schools will pay us to do it so that we don't have to put the CapEx up to build the venue, but we still get another venue we can program at that makes our network work larger and increases the flywheel of customers onto our platform. Mm -hmm. And so that pivot saved our lives. We opened, you know, Rowan and we now have Albright College and we've got a pipeline of a few dozen schools. But now we had a cap table with $40 million mm -hmm. of preference and nobody wanted to sit behind that. I've seen that kill many companies. And I think, and I hope this is a story that'll inspire others. Yeah. And I hope I can kind of give this to other founders who are going through it. But, you know, I was able to sit down with our shareholders, you know, have some very hard conversations with the people on the cap table who were no longer participating and ultimately recapitalize in favor mm -hmm. of what would be best for the company moving forward. And that required wiping all the share preference. And, you know, nobody wants to deal with that, mm -hmm. but they'd rather the company survive. And those conversations, I think too often founders are either scared of them or they're just not willing to have it. And you have to sit down face-to-face, -face, have these hard conversations, have these discussions to say, you know, what actually keeps this company alive? What's the best shot at our ROI for the shareholders here, you know, and what's realistic? And, you know, that took months and months and months, but ultimately came out the other side, recapitalized with a clean cap table and, a you know, no preference sitting in front of the new investors that want to come in. And we just, you know, put together a, a founders fund led bridge round that we're, you know, in the middle of now because of that. So that was a hard 
hard process. It was brutal. It was depressing. It was, I thought I was going to, you know, me and my wife would have conversations at night where I'm like, is this going to be around tomorrow? You know, yeah. and, and it was awful, <laughs> not fun. And I, I don't think enough people talk about the shitty parts yeah. of, you know, entrepreneurship and running a company. And that was shitty. No, you know, no beating around the bush. What was even more hard about that, at least for me personally, was that, you know, I had just lost my father, who was mm -hmm. my best friend and my mentor and, mm -hmm. you know, everything to me. And so, you know, going through that, going through having kids and now having added expenses with, my, you know, my income disappearing, mm -hmm. and, you know, it was just absolutely brutal. And I encourage more entrepreneurs to be honest about that, right? Like we don't need to sugarcoat these. It's not benefiting anybody, mm -hmm. especially the people who get naively get into this thinking, mm -hmm. look, John raised $40 million. Yeah. He's got Kevin Durant on his cap mm -hmm. table, you know founders fund invested in them, you know, they must be going. And, and that's just not the case. You know, there were moments like that. The first few mm -hmm. years, easy, right? Like the, the investments we took on, I would name a valuation and how much money we wanted. And they came in, you know, people would look at me and go, that must've been so hard. And that was bullshit. Like mm -hmm. I, people, they wanted into the company. So it was easy. That that's like the secret of VC yeah. that people don't want to talk about. You act like I'm going to convince you. It's <laughs> not really the case. It's more mm -hmm. just finding somebody who are, you know, who believes in what you're doing and it fits their thesis. And at the time, eSports was hot. We were hot. Everybody wanted in. It was very easy. The Founders Fund deal was mm -hmm. actually in the middle of the chaos. Mm -hmm. And so I had spent a year and <laughs> this is another good story. This was mm -hmm. Christmas of 21, I believe. So it's like we had just gotten through COVID. Mm -hmm. Nobody was investing in us. Mm -hmm. We were basically dead in the water. My board said to me, you've got two weeks. And this was like mm -hmm. Christmas. They were like, you've got two weeks to secure it or we want you to shut this down. Mm -hmm. I, you know, my whole life, I've written letters to people that I admire. So mm -hmm. I have written to Richard Branson. I've written mm -hmm. to Steve Wozniak, who wrote me back often. And so much so that his wife, Janet, had to email me and say, calm down because you're taking up so much of Steve's time and he'll never say no to you. And he's just like an incredibly nice person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so like I grew up with that, like anybody's accessible because I'll write mm -hmm. him a letter and maybe they'll respond. And so I just went nuts over the holiday break, emailing everybody. And I had, you know, I was a big fan of Harry Stebbings, 20, 20 mm -hmm. VC. I had just heard Joe Lonsdale from 8VC on there. And mm -hmm. I was like, this guy's talking my language. I liked how he thought everything made sense. I reached out to him and I was like, I'm just a huge fan want to take a look and he was like honestly like gaming esports i know nothing it's not my it's not my steez like mm -hmm. I, I don't i don't want to do that and i wrote back and i'm like i'm nothing if not ambitious would you introduce me to founders fund and so he said sure and so he introduced me to trey and brian at mm -hmm. founders fund got on a call with them brian's like he used to be a pro gamer gamer like competitive gamer i'm mm -hmm. not sure exactly what his resume was but he's a gamer and he understood mm -hmm. it right away and immediately saw that this was something that if the industry scales, it's going to require players like us to do that. And he, you know, investing in us could capture that major upside. And they made, you know, he, he said, I'll make an investment. Let's put together this round. They led the round. And I remember sitting in my room, you know, in my, in my Philadelphia house crying. And I was like this, like I social network was one of my favorite movies. Right. And Me too. watching, yeah, it was, all of us. Right. And like mm -hmm. watching Peter Thiel sit in there and say, I'm going to start off with a $500,000. Like, that moment when Brian said that to me, I literally hung up and I just like put my head down on the desk and I'm like, oh my gosh, like Founders <laughs> Fund's investing in me. And it was like this ultimate moment of, you know, validation for me. And it was incredibly exciting. But 
turns out brian thought that like joe had already vetted me he didn't know that <laughs> it was, i just like so like brian only found that out months later i was like oh i thought you knew joe <laughs> so i tell that story because you know there is no long shot in entrepreneurship mm -hmm. you take all the shots you gotta you know really go and chase those down because you never know who's gonna make that introduction and maybe i had no business talking to joe lonsdale but i did <laughs> so that's what matters right and then you know brian and founders fund have been with us through all of this transitioning period i think they've written us five checks including mm -hmm. the latest bridge round that you know that they've supported and really helped kind of put you know support me in that process of turning this business around and cleaning it up to get ready for scale and it's uh now finally getting to a point where it's exciting again but it's still you know scary and hard and you know it was brutal to get here so i don't want to sugarcoat any of it it was a few really easy years it was a few fun years then it was a year of like thinking this was dead and then founders fund invested and then after they invested it was two years of chaos mm -hmm. trying to recapitalize and you know transition off of this retail partnership with five below into a university structure and so it's all been messy it's all been ugly it's all been chaotic but it feels like if it wasn't hard it wouldn't be worth doing i think this is great you know i appreciate your candor and you know one of the biggest underlying points that you brought up just is like in this whole you know tech vc world you know people care so much about like you know, looking good and like the flashiness and the sexiness and all that other stuff. But that stuff isn't actually helpful to the people in it, right? Especially the entrepreneurs. You know, I haven't been a founder, you know, I've been like, you know, an investor, a venture investor, and, a, you know, I currently work for a startup and I'm a venture partner. But, you know, the actual like, like building a business is really, really hard, right? And people don't like to talk about the stuff that's actually helpful, like what you have to do when it literally looks impossible to, to move forward. So I think this stuff is just like extremely helpful and hopefully listeners will be able to gain something from it. I'm glad to hear that. I think that we live in this culture of like the self-help content creator mm -hmm. that acts like it's all perfect, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think like I'm, I'm somebody who cares deeply about my fitness. I'm, I, I run six to 15 miles a day. You know, wow. I, I, I lift, I do high intensity training. Mm -hmm. I take cold showers, mm -hmm. but guess what? I sit on my ass and eat junk food sometimes too. <laughs> and sometimes at two in the morning, I order go puffs so that I can <laughs> eat a bunch of chocolate. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wake up in the morning and don't want to run and I skip a run and mm -hmm. I don't take the cold shower. And I like, I'm not perfect at mm -hmm. that. I aim for what I know I want to do. And I think that the chase of perfection is, the, you know, we've heard it before, is the death of good. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think too often in this culture of like self-help and, you know, whatever, we, we get stuck in this, I have to present perfect. And even those people, like they're going through their hard time. It's just not realistic. And I think what that does is it kills a lot of persistence. And I think it mm -hmm. kills a lot of people's ability to just keep going because all of a sudden it's not perfect and you're seeing perfect and you're thinking that. And I just wish more, you know, 20 VC is a perfect example. One of my favorite podcasts to listen mm -hmm. to. I love hearing people on there, but so often I hear people on there and I'm like, you're giving us this very yeah. tiny curated window. Mm -hmm. And I really want to hear about it from you yeah and then besides just the polish there's also kind of the temporal nature of these views so mm -hmm. you're talking to somebody in that five minutes mm -hmm. that might be doing well but 
if you had asked them the same questions two years ago, you mm -hmm. would have gotten drastically different exactly. answers and they're not acknowledging that. So you'll hear somebody, you know, who talks about building a billion dollar company, giving advice to the person who's starting at nothing. Mm -hmm. And they're not giving advice for what it was when they were there. They're exactly. giving advice for like, oh, I do this. I read all the time. I, I work 24 <laughs> hours a day, whatever. And it's like, well, hey, guess what? Like when I was just starting this company, sometimes I got distracted by stupid things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I wasn't a great leader. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a great communicator. Sometimes I was selfish. Sometimes mm -hmm. I was childish and had to learn those things. Mm -hmm. And like, I think too many people are kind of stuck at the the top of the Dunning Kruger. Dunning Kruger. Where, yeah. Like yeah. They're, they're, they're stuck at the top and can't make it out into the valley to look back and go, oh my God, I'm not what I think yeah. I am. Let's accept the imperfection and actually be real people and talk to you, you know, as if I'm somebody who understands that this wasn't easy and stop mm -hmm. presenting as if it's easy and turning off all these other people who would otherwise go, hey, it's hard. I should just keep doing the hard thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the point you made on like, you know, sort of swinging for the fences, specifically when it comes to reaching out to people, I think is like incredible. You know, from I'm also similarly the type of person who will like always, you know, swing for the fences when it comes to like an intro or something like that. Because the worst thing that is going to happen is they're going to say no, you know, they're not going to be like forwarding your email to 100 people and like blackballing you and like trying to ruin your career. Right? Like, honestly, they don't care that much about you. You're not that important. But when it does work out, it's like amazing, you know, yep. and I, you know, fortunately have been able to meet like a ton of like amazing people that a few years ago, I would have never thought like ever in a million years, you know, I would be able to. So I think Harry, that is great as advice. we've talked about him a couple of times is a great example, right? Mm -hmm. He built a whole media oh, yeah. the <laughs> empire off of just cold emails. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's the, the blueprint for yeah. that sort of thing. But just want to shift gears and sort of wrap up here. So I, I think you've given just a ton of great advice to folks. And, you know, obviously you've worked really hard to get to where you are. But going forward, what else do you want to accomplish? You know, what do you want your impact to be? And what do you want Nerd Street's impact to be? So very different questions, I think, to some extent. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, one of the things when I, so I was running Jarvis for 12 years mm -hmm. before I left, you know, we had built a medical tech, like the iPad app for Elsevier, the medical textbook mm -hmm. publishing company. We had worked with, you know, the Philadelphia Orchestra. We'd worked with the University of Pennsylvania. We had worked on a robotics programming apps for drone control systems. You know, in my mind, Jarvis was like the ultimate, like, let's be at the leading edge. Let's be at the cutting edge. And so when I started Nerd Street and was focused full time on that and transitioned out of Jarvis, I had this insecurity, like, mm -hmm. Am I doing enough? Am I impactful enough? Am I making a big enough dent if I'm just running gaming venues? Mm -hmm. And that was really tough for me to some extent. And, you know, to kind of hedge that, I kept running my venture arm and I've continued to make investments in deep mm -hmm. tech and things like that. And, you know, I mentor a bunch of startups. I've worked with tech stars and, you know, things like that. But it was probably the second year we were running when I saw what we were really doing. And I mm -hmm. saw multiple kids who for the first time had they'd ever played a pc game at my venue mm -hmm. were now playing in college we're now pro gamer athletes we're now broadcast engineers and broadcast streamers with careers and i realized that these venues became catalysts for people's entire lives mm -hmm. and what hit me in that moment was we need this in our country we need to develop these minds inside these types of innovative centers that really catalyze progress and it was in 
in that moment that I realized I could actually probably have the most impact in my life by doing that. And that if there are thousands of nerd street venues in the country, sending hundreds of thousands of kids to college and creating millions of technologists, that's the best possible impact I could ever have. And so I've found my comfort in that in doing what I'm doing. But with that said, I was a physics major. I spent my whole life studying mm -hmm. rocketry and orbital mechanics. And my whole passion for life was how can we colonize the stars? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I will never lose that passion. And I will always desire to get back to that in some way, shape or form. And so no matter what, even if I run Nerd Street for the rest of my life, I very much plan to invest in, to mentor and to be a part of deep tech and the space tech industry, which I think is one of the most important things that humanity can do. However, I have every intention of running Nerd Street for the rest of my life and having the most impact here on earth that I could possibly have by building these centers. And, you know, it's still a highly technological business that affords all sorts of opportunities to innovate, whether it's, you know, the types of technologies that connect our venues and the, and the networking between them, whether it's the development of the actual hardware inside our venues, whether it's the software that we wrote to manage the distribution of the events inside of our venues that all started with late night coding sessions by myself six years ago, you know, I'll find ways inside, but ultimately have found comfort that I can be the catalyst for all of these things. And that the only way we're going to get to the stars is if we have a society that develops the minds that take us there. And I want to be a part of doing that. So that's me personally, you know, Nerd Street as a company, my vision for Nerd Street has always been the same is that gaming venues become ubiquitous in society. Mm -hmm. People talk about South Korea and say that, oh, internet cafes work mm -hmm. in South Korea because there's so many people who like gaming. No, there are so many people who like gaming because there are so many internet mm -hmm. cafes. That culture works here. We just didn't do it. And mm -hmm. people like to think that the market is perfect and that we'll figure all things out of it. That is not true. Mm -hmm. If you're even the slightest you know, bit of an Elon Musk fan, you know that without him, we don't have the things that he did. We don't have private space industry the way it is. We don't have EVs the way they are. We're not doing Neuralink and corporate private. You know, th these things were done because he decided to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that these venues, this type of connected digital physical infrastructure will happen because we're going to do it. And that will be the most important thing that can be done for our country in terms of developing more capable, more productive, and more progressive minds moving forward. So I want to see thousands of Nerd Street venues across the world. I want us to be the live nation of gaming where when you want a live experience in gaming, we're the only player you can call and we've got the distribution scale to make your pro esports team, your pro esports league, your college league profitable and sustainable forever. I want to be the backbone of competitive gaming where whatever the NCAA of gaming turns out to be, whatever the NFL of gaming turns out to be, relies on our infrastructure to be there and we can be agnostic to who wins. Awesome, man. I'm going to leave it there. I just want to cool. say this has been a, a great conversation and thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.